0: Episode 13, brought to you by LifeTree at Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of Spiritual Grit and the Jesus Centered Life and general editor of the Jesus Centered Bible, which you you hear about pretty much every episode of this podcast. You hear about the Jesus Centered Bible. It's was a massive undertaking, by the way. It was a two-year project, and that journey led us to this Bible that we dreamed of creating so that when people read this Bible, because of the extra features that are in it, no matter where you're reading the Bible, your heart and your attention is focused on Jesus. And it's been like miraculously successful, this Bible has been. I think we're coming up on about 130,000 people that have bought a copy of this Bible. And we hear stories all the time of how the features in this Bible have helped to reveal Jesus and show his heart and show where he shows up in unexpected places like no Bible people have ever had before. So it's just so gratifying to have been a part of this project that so many people have told us has has changed their lives. So if you don't have one or you know someone you think would really be impacted by this, especially someone who's not really uh, an avid Bible reader, we've heard from a lot of people that the Jesus-centered Bible really helps people who are not that usually interested in reading the Bible. It really draws them in. So we have, um, at, at as we head into Easter here, this uh, special little bundle that they've kind of put together of the Jesus-centered Bible and the journal that that goes with it, and then um, kind of a, a suite or a menu of devotions that were developed around it as well. So you just need to go to lifetree.com and check that out, or you can go to group.com and. Do the same thing. Just search for the Jesus Centered Bible and you'll find this little bundle of the Bible, the journal, and devotions. And it makes a great, fantastic thing to give as a gift as we're heading into Easter. So today is our next to last episode in our on-ramp into the Easter season. It's a series that we're calling Death to Life. And just as a reminder, in the kingdom of God, death always leads to life. In fact, all of creation has been created with this embedded rhythm That death leads to life and life, things that are living die, but they regenerate back into life. And that goes all the way down to our cell level, that our cells actually regenerate by taking the pieces of dead cells and reconfiguring them into new cells. Even at the cellular level, this death to life seasonal pattern in our life exists. So life is really at the core of the kingdom of God, but death is a part of that cycle. So today, the becky Nader joins me to talk about a death-to-life topic that we rarely focus on anymore. It's the role of sacrifice in our life with Jesus, and here's the becky Nader.
1: Hi! It's so exciting to hear all of you guys, and I'm going to be probably going on the pig's page probably after this to talk a little bit about this episode, so it's been great to reconnect with all of you guys.
0: A little-known fact about the becky Nader: out of this sort of generative experience of the two of us kind of launching this podcast from nothing um, a few years ago. She's, she's now helping other people launch their podcasts all over the country. Uh, she has online courses that can help you do that um, and consulting. So if you are uh, thinking about starting your own podcast, can you imagine that you would actually get the Becky Nader helping you to launch that? You could do that. So we'll put a link on our site so that if you want to get in touch with her because you're interested in exploring the possibility of starting your own podcast, she can really help you with that. So, so there you go. You know, Becky, I think our conventional understanding of sacrifice, the word sacrifice, just growing up in the church, is kind of an ominous word growing up in the church. Because I heard a lot of like Old Testament examples and standards for sacrifice. And sacrifice was treated like an imperative Uh, in the Christian life growing up in the church. And these sort of Old Testament visions of sacrifice, a lot of it was animal sacrifice, are sort of mixed together with these New Testament examples of sacrifice. And when they get all mashed together, it's all very confusing, I think. And so sacrifice, by its very definition, especially in the Old Testament definition, had to always involve a death. So I thought it'd be fascinating for us to explore the nature of sacrifice because it's so attached to this cycle of death to life. So God's attitude towards sacrifice and its role in our everyday life with him really shifted, radically shifted once the sacrifice of Jesus was complete. And I think that goes largely sort of unnoticed or unpaid attention to in the church, that there was a difference in the way we see sacrifice between the Old and New Testaments. And I think that it all gets sort of schlocked together. And sometimes people will say, well, the Old Testament doesn't even really matter anymore. They'll go to that extreme. Mm-hmm. And some people still adopt practices and standards from the Old Testament, even though we live in a new covenant sort of era. So when you were growing up, what was your relationship to or your understanding of what sacrifice meant as part of the Christian life?
1: This is one of the reasons why I kind of love reading the Old Testament. It's always like the people went astray. They had to go to war. They were taken over by a warring country. They needed to get back on good terms with God. So they sacrificed a bunch of stuff. And then (laughs) he came in and he defeated the armies. And it's just like, it's basically a repeated cycle, you know? But one of the things about sacrifice is, it wasn't just about giving up something. You were actually asked to give your best of something.
0: In our entryway into our house, there's a, I don't know if you remember this, Becky, but uh, we have this framed picture of a lamb that is, that has its legs tied up and it's on an altar and it's a famous painting of Jesus. It's actually called Jesus. <laughs> it's by the artist Zurbaran. Uh He's a Spanish artist and he decided to metaphorically paint Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. And I've used this, this painting off and on for the last 15 years when I'm engaging groups of people face-to-face about what the sacrifice of Jesus was all about because it's amazing. We'll put a link to this painting on our podcast page so you guys can look at this painting. But the Zurbaran put in so much detail into the countenance of this lamb on the altar, the exact way the legs are tied, the the look in the eyes of this lamb. It's almost mesmerizing to look at this painting. And the way I use this face-to-face with people is to have them describe what they see in this lamb and then make connections to Jesus out of what they see. And it's actually a disturbing painting. (laughs) It's funny that we have it in our entryway, but Maybe that's the naughty part of me that I like when people come into our house and they see this painting out of the corner of their eye. And then you see it in one way out of the corner of your eye. But if you actually turn and look at it, it's disturbing. So sometimes people will come into our house, they'll glance at it, they'll glance back and you can see them kind of have a little bit of a shockwave roll through them (laughs) when they see this painting. And it gives me an opportunity to explain the significance of this painting but I did have to negotiate with Bev to put it in our entryway. So sacrifice, we sometimes forget like a, in the old Testament, these animal sacrifices, if you could imagine this being a regular part of your life, where you're cutting the throat of living animals and the screams of those animals and they're writhing and you're holding on to them. And it's, I don't even want to describe it too much. It gives me the heebie jeebies just to think about what people did as a normal part of their life. So much so, if you remember, uh, we're going to get to this in a little bit, but when Jesus cleared the temple of the money changers, he also cleared the temple of all the people who were buying and selling animals for sacrifices. There, so many people were sacrificing animals that you could create a thriving business in the temple, just selling sacrificial animals all the time. We have no conception, unless you grew up on a farm where slaughtering was part of your experience on the farm. but. Fewer and fewer people have that actual hands-on experience with something like this. So it all just sounds so horrifying when you think about it.
1: I was just going to say like a modern day version of that would be that if you were like, if what you're really, really good at is writing, the equivalent would be that God would ask you to write your best book and then take it and throw it in the fire. Like that's what it would be like cuz I think because we don't grow up like oh well my job is to raise cattle or my job is to you know grow wheat like it would be the equivalent of whatever you're best at you would do that best thing and then you would toss it into the fire and watch it be disintegrated.
0: Yeah, it's, <laughs> <as> it's atonement. <laughs> yeah, and and that's a good point too because of course this is a living being that was being sacrificed and sometimes there's a relationship with these sacrificial animals. It was not a minor thing. Uh, It was a big deal. So I thought it would be interesting for us to take kind of a quick tour through the old Testament just to get our minds around, well, why was this system of animal sacrifice instituted? And then we're going to take a kind of a deeper plunge into Jesus in the new Testament and his relationship with sacrifice and how all of that turned through his sacrifice. So, uh, so Becky and I will just uh, kind of hopscotch through the Old Testament here a little bit and talk through uh, this, this uh, practice of sacrifice in the Old Testament. So first of all, it's mentioned hundreds and hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament. It, it really started in early on in Genesis. We see in Genesis chapter seven, where God instructs Noah After the world has flooded, because the world has become so evil, God saves out for Himself um, a few human beings and a bunch of animals to start the world over again. And his and part of his instructions to Noah are: you not only need to bring animals that can reproduce once the flood goes away, but you need to bring animals that you're you're intending to sacrifice uh, along the way, and then once the ship. Uh, runs aground again, you need extra animals for animal sacrifices. so so here God is instituting this practice of of what 's called atonement. Atonement means basically a substitution for you. so the the reason this started is because uh, through the fall of Adam and Eve and the entrance of sin into the world, and that fall you know fall falls kind of a nice sounding word, but actually it was an abject betrayal of their relationship with God through that the penalty for what they did. And therefore we acquire their sin just by being born into the world. The penalty for that has been set out long ago at the foundations of the world, at the foundations of creation. The penalty for that betrayal is death. God's creation should have been killed as a result of their betrayal, but God sort of works out a legal deal where temporarily this system of animal sacrifice can substitute for the death of his beloved and pay the price kind of. It's, it's almost like um, if you take out a loan with a loan shark mm-hmm. and you can't quite pay it all back, and then you get a massive amount of interest thrown onto it, and then you have to meet your next deadline. Well, you can't meet that one either, and you're sort of bargaining with the loan shark for time to see how far you can extend this out until you really have to pay the bill at the end. And in the case of some loan sharks, they might just, you know, take your life. And that's what was on the line here. It's really a legal issue, if you think about it, that the the price of sin had to be paid. And Satan, God's enemy, can hold this over him. He can say that you set up the legal system, God, so a death is warranted here. And so the, this system of animal sacrifice sort of allowed mankind to go on, accruing interest all the way, and continue to exist. So one thing that's interesting about this is the way C.S. Lewis handled this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Thought I'd just mention that real quick. Um, In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, of course, Aslan the Lion represents Jesus in this story. And Aslan agrees to be sacrificed on this stone table in the wilderness because edmund one of the four british children who are who have plunged into this fantastical land of narnia edmund has betrayed aslan and the kingdom and so the white witch who's a representative of satan in this world demands that edmund die and in his stead aslan volunteers without the children really understanding what he's doing he volunteers to die himself and the witch thinks this is fantastic this idiot lion is sacrificing himself this is how i'll conquer him we're going to kill him and then when he's gone who cares if he sacrificed his life for edmund then i'm just going to take over as soon as he's gone so that's essentially what happens and then of course aslan is sacrificed as jesus is sacrificed but then he is life comes back into him he comes back off the stone table alive shocking the children And so the children are wondering, what is, what does this all mean? What has just happened here? So Susan, one of the four children says, after everything had sort of calmed down, after they kind of freaked out, oh my gosh, Aslan is off the stone table. Aslan explains to her, he says, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back, Into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. So there's Lewis trying to explain sort of the underpinnings of atonement. You went to Bible school, (laughs) Becky. Uh what did you learn about sacrifice and atonement when you look back on that experience? Do you do you was that actually something you focused on very much or was it a sidelight issue when you were in Bible school?
1: I didn't take a specific course on that, but I did take the Old Testament. And so, but that was a six week course where we read the Old Testament three times during those six weeks. And wow. that was actually the first time I had read the entire Old Testament. I had really just gotten little stories growing up. And it's that was when I fell in love with the Old Testament because when you read it all in its sequence, the way that it was designed to be, and we read it three different ways, that's why we read it three times, you really start to see the system that was in place. And it really helps you understand the reason why the system was being broken with Jesus coming to the cross. And so when you start to see this, like, wow, this was a system and we were constantly in it and we couldn't get out of it. We were just going around in circles. And then you see this break in time where, we are atoned forever. It really has a much larger impact, and I put Old Testament off to my last semester of college because I was really dreading it. <laughs> it sounded so boring, and it ended up being my most favorite course that I took when i when I was going to college. so
0: yeah, what's interesting about that too is that a lot of times people think of this system of animal sacrifice as like appeasing an angry God, which harkens back to a lot of pagan religions throughout history that you have to appease the angry God. And once you appease the angry God, things will be okay. But that's not what this system was. It was never even described that way in the Old Testament. It is simply God buying time for his beloved.
1: And actually the, the entire system was designed for one thing and one thing only, and that was relationship. it was the whole entire thing. We sometimes think like, Oh, you know, just like pagan sacrifices or whatever, this is all about control. Maybe like, Oh, this is like a God and he needs us to work for him. Like that's what he needs. Um, and so I think when we, think about this system, which was, it was a legal transaction. It was designed to restore our relationship with God. That was the whole point of it. And when you realize that you're like, oh my gosh, this God loves me so much. Like, that's amazing. That This is the epitome of what a loving God looks like.
0: I think that's such an important point. You're essentially saying that this system of animal sacrifice was a temporary bridge into relationship, but it wasn't the permanent solution for the break in our relationship. God was scheming, strategizing, shrewdly thinking out over the course of history how He could bring about a permanent solution to this that His enemy would never see coming. He had to outsmart and outwit an enemy who had a legal right to demand death on the basis of our sin. He had to outwit that enemy. And institute a permanent solution, one that the enemy could never conceive would happen. And so that's all of history, all of the Old Testament is preparation, is on ramp into this strategic plan that the Trinity concocts in order to make relationship, intimacy with his creation, a permanent reality again. You can see the patience and humility of God over the centuries, preparing the way for the Messiah to come. And that Messiah would do something that the enemy of God would never expect and would never guess, because it's what Jesus willingly did in his sacrifice is outside of Satan's understanding of how people are motivated. He could not conceive of God giving away his own son on purpose as a sacrifice it just in the the account that we just read from the line, the witch in the wardrobe, Lewis beautifully captures how inconceivable this was to the white witch that Aslan would give up his own life. She just sees it as an opportunity to extend her power in a way that she didn't expect. It's like, Oh my gosh, a gift is dropped into my lap. And I think he perfectly captures what this must have felt like sort of in the spiritual realm. So there's a lyric from a, a song by Counting Crows that I just love. I listen to this song over and over again because there's something so raw and personal about this song. It's, it was just released a couple of months ago as a kind of a one-off from the Counting Crows. Adam Duritz is the lead singer and songwriter for Counting Crows, and their album that kind of broke through into huge popularity about 20 years ago was called August and Everything After. And there was supposed to be a song on that album called August and Everything After, but they never got it recorded. So there was no song on that album called that. And so only recently has he finished writing that song and he recorded it. And there's a line in the song that I, just rivets me. Here's the lyric. It's midnight in San Francisco, and I'm waiting here for Jesus on my knees. I need somebody else to bleed for me. It's such a raw, childlike expression of need. Because Adam Duritz is one messed up kind of, (laughs) he's one messed up guy. And what I love about him though is he puts his messed upness into his songs. And here he's, I think he's envisioning an actual scene where he's in a hotel room in San Francisco one night, just empty. And he cries out like a kid, I need someone else to bleed for me. And I think, don't we all? We all need someone else to bleed for us. And that was essentially the plan of God. So let's jump now into the New Testament and start to contrast the Old Testament version of sacrifice with what we see in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, sacrifice is reinvented and reimagined by Jesus. And it has a different kind of role in the New Covenant. So just to start to skip through the sort of the progression of Jesus's relationship with sacrifice early on in his ministry, he treats animal sacrifice as a normal, a normal part of life. In fact, early on in the gospel of Matthew, he basically tells people, Hey, if you're coming to give a sacrifice, you need to go be reconciled with anyone who has something against you first. So he's not saying don't sacrifice. He's at this point still promoting their long held practice of animal sacrifice. He's just saying, go be reconciled with whoever you have a problem with before you do it. So early on, he's still embracing this practice of animal sacrifice. A little bit later, he quotes Hosea 6-6, the Old Testament prophet. And he's, he's talking to the Pharisees, who are obviously pushing back against him. And he says to the Pharisees, quoting Hosea 6-6, Now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. He chides the Pharisees again a little bit later using the exact same passage from Hosea. He reiterates it again. Hey, I want you to understand the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. Becky, when you think about how that, those words must have hit those people, what do you imagine the impact of those words would be on those people?
1: Well, their entire... <laughs> Their entire relationship with God to this point has been this system. And it's all about like, I mean, like when you were talking about like people buying the best sacrifices, right? Like people were like, I didn't have time to raise a good cow this year or my cow's not good enough. And so maybe my cow's not going to be good enough to cover the amount of sin. And it's the system and process that they have. And now what he's saying is, I want you to have grace and not just for others but for yourself too like i actually want you to have grace for yourself (laughs) and i'm gonna remove this whole like process and system and this working harder and working harder and this negotiation that's really turned into a fake process in a lot of ways by this point
0: the pharisees have morphed the system of sacrifice into a system that shows no mercy Mm -hmm. that they are rigid and they, they don't even understand the heart. You said it so beautifully before, Becky, that, that the purpose of this system of atonement was to restore and retain intimate relationship with his creation. But the Pharisees turn this into a point system for maintaining your goodness. And then they add all kinds of detail into the point system. So they have turned this system into a bludgeon over people. And so Jesus is like in their face. I'm tired of the sacrifices. I want you to learn how to show mercy, not hold over the heads of people, the bludgeon of sacrifice.
1: And it must have felt like they were, for the majority of the people, the education level on this understanding and the big picture um, of this was for a very small amount of people really understood it. And so for the majority of the people, they must have felt like this God doesn't care about me at all. This God is distant. This God does not, all he's asking is for me to just continue to give and I don't have anything left and it's never good enough.
0: He's a scary and God.
1: He's not a God who is seeking after relationship with me. And so this had to have been such an upending, well, Jesus was just upending. He he says <laughs> that way, so...
0: It's so true, and I have already mentioned that in the next stage of this was that he clears the temple of the money changers, but we forget sometimes he clears mm-hmm. the temple of both the people buying animals and selling them. He didn't just go after the people selling mm-hmm. them. He, he went after the people who were buying them too, and this was a major deal. The fact that Jesus cleared the temple, this was front-page news, if they had a newspaper. This was a front-page news in jerusalem that jesus did this it was a lightning bolt in the culture that he drove these people out of the temple mm-hmm. on behalf of his father the temple again represents the presence of god on earth except now jesus is the presence of god literally on earth but what it symbolizes to the people is their connection to relationship with god and here jesus sees this bludgeony animal sacrifice system operating within the very space that is designed to be a bridge to relationship and he goes ballistic he can't stand the way this has been twisted then if you remember at the last supper he asks his friends to drink from the cup after he's asked them to drink the bread he asks them to drink from the cup and then he says each of you drink from it for this is my blood which confirms the covenant between god and his people it is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. So now he's shifting and he's not talking about animal sacrifice anymore. He's talking about his own blood as a sacrifice. This is a huge shift. And Becky, I think uh, it's hard for us to comprehend how confusing this must have been for the disciples at the time. I mean, if you put yourself in their shoes and they're there at the last supper and Jesus is saying things like no more animal sacrifice, because I'm about to pour out my blood, what do you think you'd be thinking?
1: Maybe a little concerned. Like, is it <laughs> like what? What's what's in the juice? <laughs> I mean,
0: uh, Jesus, Jesus, that that's not. Really are,
1: are we talking about my my blood? <laughs>
0: um, I, I might not be okay with that. I might
1: not be okay with that, but they still drink it. So they had you know level of trust i don't think that these guys understood i think he was trying to give a precursor to what he was about to do but at the at the time that it was happening i think that they were just genuinely confused and really hoping that there wasn't something in the cup <laughs>
0: and what's comforting about that confusion is that the whole thing is dependent on the enemy of god also being confused about this jesus is saying these things and they're not going unnoticed in this so-called kingdom of darkness But they are that in that kingdom. They are equally confused about what he's saying. It's beyond their understanding about what's about to happen. Uh, In in a way, Satan thinks like a mafia member, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. in two dimensions. I got to knock this guy out. This guy who's trying to get a name for himself and trying to bring worship back to God. I got to now. Oh look, he's just handed himself over to me. (laughs) This is my lucky day. This is exactly the momentum that the Trinity wants, and the fact that the disciples are confused is actually a good sign. (laughs) If everyone's confused about what's about to happen, then there's probably a good chance that the enemy of God is also confused. Then later on, Jesus responds to one of the teachers of the law, who Jesus is interacting with, and usually these interactions with the Pharisees are really contentious. This one's not. This is one of the few that's not. And so Jesus is responding to the teacher of the law, who has just said this, I know, Jesus, it's important to love God with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Jesus is like, whoa, somebody oh gets my it. Gosh. <laughs> so and then Jesus says, realizing how much the man understood, <laughs> Jesus said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. I now that, that is rare to say love to a Pharisee. The only other one that he says this to is really is Nicodemus. This guy does get it. He understands that there's something higher mm-hmm. than this sacrificial, slave-like uh, attention to the sacrifice. Then the sacrifice Jesus chooses, where he pours out his blood and his body, it's time to coincide with Passover. This is so beautiful, it's so artistic, that the sacrifice of Jesus comes on Passover. The very time when the blood of the lamb is spread across your door to indicate that the angel of death can pass over and leave those inside with life. So Jesus makes this extraordinary proclamation in John chapter 10 when he's looking forward to the cross. Here's what he says. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold I must bring them also they will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd the father loves me because why because I sacrifice my life so that I may take it back again no one can take my life from me I sacrifice it voluntarily what what do you think of when I read that proclamation that Jesus makes Becky
1: He's saying, "I'm going to do this. I'm going to give it because it's for the greater good." And, and this is kind of one of those tension things, actually, to what we're talking about. Is the way that he's talking about this is, "I'm going to basically be a masochist for all of you. Like, I'm going to endure a ton of pain for a long-term payoff."
0: Long-term payoff is
1: relationship with us, right? Yeah. He wants to restore the relationship, and so he's willing to do it. But I think that we sometimes take this. As an assignment that to be like Jesus means that we also have to constantly sacrifice everything for everyone and anything that comes in our direction and that that is what being a good Christian looks like.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great point. That That's where we're going to get to in just a minute, too, is to really kind of upend our, some of our understanding about sacrifice based on what Jesus is doing here. And I love what you're saying here, too, that this is not part of his marching orders from his general. This is part of the Trinity's decision, passionate decision, to restore not just a friendship with us, but Jesus describes the kind of relationship he wants with us as I and you and you and me. It's very intimate. The goal here is intimacy, the, the kind of intimacy that, yeah. that the, the Trinity enjoyed with the creation, but actually a deeper intimacy, an intimacy that is almost miraculous because it's in the face of sin and brokenness and destruction. That kind of intimacy is a miracle. The fact that we can say with Peter, when Jesus asks him, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, Where else would I go? Only you have words of life and truth. The fact that we can resonate with Peter and in our own hearts say that same thing to Jesus I'm not leaving Jesus, even if stuff gets hard, even when I'm in the midst of hard, I can't leave because you're the only one for me. You are the only one for me, Jesus, is a miracle. So the restoration of relationship that Jesus is after is that. Later on, John the one who always describes himself as the one Jesus loved, John the Apostle, in 1 John explains some of what's happened to upend the Old Testament approach to sacrifice and what Jesus has brought. He says, this is how God showed his love to us. This goes back to what you are saying before at the very beginning, Becky, that this whole sacrificial system was designed to show God's love, now through Jesus even more so. So John says, this is how God showed his love to us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. My beloved ones, since God has loved us in this way, we, we need to love one another. So John is saying here over and over again, hey, the point isn't how much you love God. The point is how much he loves you, and look at how he's demonstrated his love for you. And we are like every other human being who's ever lived. We tend to overlook and take for granted those things that we're over familiar with. So -hmm. therefore the sacrifice of Jesus, we're all kind of familiar with that. And we just sort of take it for granted. We lose some of its oomph, its deep, deep uh, impact in our lives. So if Jesus desires mercy and not sacrifice, And if the sacrifice of Jesus is a once and for all permanent atonement, well, what does sacrifice mean for us now? Mm -hmm. I I think the answer to this is surprising. You told me a story the other day, Becky, about when we were talking through what is sacrifice now on this side of the cross and what isn't it. I'd love for you to tell that story now
1: so i was in dallas a few weeks ago at the last spring more than me event and this will be the third one that i attended and my role at this event this time was i was sitting in the back of the room and i was transcribing the entire event for so the whole entire day from start to finish because we wanted to see like what the theme looked like when it was all put together and could we replicate this in some way that we create a curriculum and so I had a different lens on because of that. I was taking notes and I was really paying attention to the flow and how things were working. And at the very beginning, the first exercise that we do. So the context of this event is we're bringing women together to uncover our shame, move on from things that are holding us back so that we can claim our purpose and live, live out loud with the gifts and talents that Jesus has given us. And so that's the context of of this event. So at the beginning, we ask women to write down what their superpower is. And then we ask them to share it at their table. And then we ask them to stand up and share it with the whole entire group. And what I noticed as I was writing down the answers there, you know, there was like 50 some women in the room, almost every single one, I would say like 99% of the answers was that their superpower was some kind of sacrificial service to other people? And it struck me. It really struck me. I, I was like, Why is that? And um I brought it up in our core team meeting, and we said, You know, what if we did the superpower exercise at the beginning and at the end? Because at the end, I think we were really uncovering, like, hey, God made me to do something. And that that something could be something that creates prosperity for myself and my family and the world around me. I could start a nonprofit. I could really give this talent, but I think a lot of times, not just women, but maybe more often women, we tend to just feel like God's asking us to put our dreams on the back burner because what really matters is taking care of just about everyone else, (laughs) our family, our friends, our churches, we're being asked to sacrifice anything that God's put in us. And so it was really powerful. And it was part of when we decided that this was the topic, I was like, this story fully illustrates it. And I just, I want to say this, like, I think God designed each of us with intention and he gave us specific gifts and talents and he actually wants you to use those and he wants to use them not as a sacrifice, but because he wants you to provide abundance around you. He wants your gifts and your talents to benefit everybody. And he doesn't want to hide the light that he designed in you. And so if there's something in you that you have felt like, well, I can't, I, if I did that, it would be selfish. Um, I think that he would say, I want I want your light to shine. And that doesn't mean that you're going to be successful. I think that sometimes we take that as like, Oh, well, God's going to make it prosperous. Maybe it won't be prosperous, but maybe he wants you to do it anyways.
0: No, no, that's really good. I, as you're talking about this too, that I'm just, I have in my mind, this metaphor Jesus uses, for uh, describing what life is going to be like for us once he goes to the cross, he's resurrected, he tells his disciples, my spirit will come and live in you and then you will become my body on earth. When we throw around this term, the body of Christ, and it doesn't really mean anything to us anymore. It just means like the friends who follow Jesus uh, around the world, but it actually has more of a deeply metaphoric meaning. What we're saying here and what you're saying, Becky, is that, Jesus would never consciously paralyze one of his arms. No. He would never say, let's just lop that one off because I, I don't really need my other arm here on earth. No, he wants all of these parts of his body to be fully alive, full of vigor, to operate the way he did in the world when he was here. Yeah, I love what John Eldridge, I told you the other day that I think the first time I ran across this quote was in Wild at Heart when I read it for the first time. And Wild at Heart by John Eldridge was a life-changing book for me and for millions of people. In fact, we'll post the podcast interview I did with John Eldridge on this page. If you didn't hear when I interviewed John Eldridge last year, he was the whole episode about a year ago, We'll post that episode on this page, and you can go back and listen to it again. So we had a great conversation about what I'm about to talk about. The quote that he put in Wild at Heart was from St. Irenaeus, and the quote was this, the glory of God is a man fully alive. The glory of God is a man fully alive. I think this is the most succinct expression of what sacrifice on this side of the cross really looks like and it doesn't seem like a sacrificial statement when you first hear it the glory of god is a man fully alive the original thing that saint irenius said and then this was sort of translated and interpreted into what i just told you but the original thing he said was for the glory of god is the living man and the life of the man is the vision of god if you think about that the vision of god what he's really saying is our comprehension our taste of Jesus is really our life. And that life in us is the thing that glorifies God. When we apprehend and experience and get our arms around and taste the heart of Jesus, that life that flows into us, into our dead branch from that living vine is what glorifies God. So when we say the glory of God is a man fully alive, I think about the story you just told Becky and The sacrifice, our sacrifice then, is to sacrifice the deep desire we have to negate ourselves. Because to negate ourselves means to live safely.
1: Well, Um, and that goes back to what he said. It's about mercy over sacrifice. When we negate ourselves, we're actually not giving ourselves grace. We're not having mercy for ourselves. And so we're the ones lopping on all of these false beliefs that – oh, I'm not good enough, or I wouldn't be good at that, or what if I fail? All of this stuff is actually not giving yourself any grace. He desires mercy over sacrifice, not just for other people, but for you to give it to yourself as well.
0: And I would say that Satan co-opted the Old Testament system of atonement and animal sacrifice. He co-opted it and twisted it into a source of evil. That's why Jesus was contesting it. It became the bludgeon over people's heads. And he's trying to co-opt Jesus's sacrifice in our life right now. Like I said on our last podcast episode, that one of the bugs in my operating system is common to almost all men. And it is this little voice inside that we hear that, that says, whispers to us, you're not enough. You're not enough. You're not enough. And I said before that I was part of a, like a mini research project here to figure out How many men, what percentage of men actually hear that little voice in their head? And it's in the mid-90 percentile that almost all Christian men, and you could expand it out there to men in general, but almost all Christian men have this voice inside that says, you're not enough. And that voice is really tied to the bastardized, twisted version of sacrifice that Satan has leveraged in our lives. Its impact is for us to diminish ourselves, to stand back, to not risk, to shy from challenge, to drag ourselves back from the precipice of real impact. This sacrificial mentality, this twisted one, leads us to diminish ourselves, to stay in the shadows, to essentially lop off one of the limbs of the body of Christ or numb it at the very least. And what happens then is the kingdom of God is not advanced because every single person in the body of Christ, no matter who they are, is necessary and crucial for the advance of the kingdom of God. Each person has a unique role to play in the body. And when any one of those is diminished, the whole body is diminished. So the glory of God is a man fully alive, is a body of Christ fully alive because the members of that body are no longer shouldering the weight of the sacrifice, but they're living in the light of, in the life of the sacrifice Jesus has made. You look like you're about to say something, Becky.
1: (laughs) No, I'm just loving every minute of this conversation.
0: (laughs) So, well, let's, let's then transition into uh, thinking through, well, what does this actually mean for us then in our everyday life? What, what does sacrifice on the other side of the cross mean for us? So I, I love this in our small group this last week. We were reading through uh, some of John, I think it was John 10 or 11, where Jesus is describing what the thief came to do, kill, steal, and destroy. And then he contrasts that with what he came to do. I came to, and he uses these exact words, I came to give you a rich and satisfying life. In our small group, we compared what rich and satisfying life means in comparison to the american dream Hmm. we talked about what is the american dream anyway and we listed a bunch of stuff and then we said well how does that how does the american dream contrast with a rich and satisfying life what does that even mean and it was such a great conversation these kids talked about how a normal person could see rich and satisfying as meaning more possessions more achievements more successes and accomplishments, and they said, but obviously that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a rich life that's thick with beauty and a satisfying life that allows you to feel a peace no matter what circumstances you're in. That's what a satisfying life really is. So if our sacrifice then, what if our sacrifice was to live into a rich and satisfying life? to live into the life that Jesus says he wants to give us. I just thought of a couple of ways that that might look like or does look like in my life. A part of that for me is to maximize the risks I take on behalf of the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. to not hold back who I am, even though I'm a broken messed up person to not use that as an excuse to sacrifice the glory that God has put in me. That's what Eldridge really reclaimed in Wild at Heart was that God has planted glory in us that reflects back on him. And he doesn't want us to put it under a bushel (laughs) to hide that glory. That was a radical thought, you know, 20 years ago when Wild at Heart came out, that was a radical thought for a people of God who were used to diminishing that under a bushel, sacrificing who they are on the altar, That is exactly what the enemy of God wants us to do. So for me, it's maximizing my risk. And the risk is, will I risk putting out there, giving in a hundred percent way aspects of who I am to others in my life? Will I risk that? Will I be authentic in my worship? Will I be vulnerable in my worship? Will I be out there and admit how desperately dependent I am on him? Will I not hide that dependence on him? What are some ways when you think about living into a rich and satisfying life, Becky, what does that mean for you right now?
1: I think right now it means not doing everything alone. Um, When you decide to work in collaboration with other people instead of competition, there's something really beautiful that happens. And almost every area of my life right now, I'm really pushing myself to be doing almost everything that I'm doing with other people. And to say, you know what? You have these gifts over here and I don't have them. Come join me. You have these gifts over here. Come join me. Let's do this together. What would happen if instead of being all weird about competition, what if instead we did all of this together? And I'm amazed right now actually at what's happening by just Being that way with other people and the different kinds of relationships that are being drawn and also how when I put someone up on my shoulders so that they can get higher, they're pulling me up after they get to the top. And I think that we often just. We have such a competitive society, and I just did an interview with a woman who did her her PhD research, Dr. Courtney Baker, and she did research to figure out why women weren't showing up in leadership positions across the country and what she found she did you know she had four bases for her study and she thought it was going to be one of those in particular she thought it was going to be because of discrimination that wasn't an issue at all what she found was the number one reason that women weren't moving into leadership positions was because they were being too competitive with one another and that That competitive nature made them look immature and not prepared for leadership. And so she's now working with women to teach them how to be collaborative.
0: And that competitiveness, actually, this is going to sound weird, but that competitiveness is actually part of the twisted, bastardized version Mm -hmm. of sacrifice, where you sacrifice the high calling of community of vulnerability with one another, of being for one another, for the paltry, tiny little, I'm going to create my own kingdom here and I'm going to build walls around my kingdom so that my kingdom can thrive no matter what happens to yours is a diminishment of the rich and satisfying life that Jesus came to bring. But conversely, if you think about when I talked about the risk involved, think about the risk to go against that competitiveness to maintain your vulnerability, your generosity, your desire to give. My wife Bev, I've mentioned on the podcast before, has befriended this Syrian refugee family. They have been in Denver for a couple of years and they're just trying to scratch out a living. They're trying to learn English and make their way out of after a horrific life and, and a narrow escape from death in Syria. And they have started a little restaurant in this kind of backwater place off a off the beaten track you know, it's it's a real moonshot if this thing is ever going to work. But we've come alongside them to try to help them launch this restaurant. And some of our friends who have special skills, we've asked for their help along the way. And one of our friends, Brandon, who's a genius, he has his own business, sort of photographing from the air and from GPS, uh, plots of land around the community of Denver and marking them out for construction companies that might want to build in a place or he's, he's got this great little business that he runs and he, and he does work with people that are printers and sign makers and things like that. So we needed a menu for this Syrian restaurant, a menu and some uh, street signs and things like that, that could start to draw people in. So we asked Brandon, would you be willing to help them? And Brandon said he would, and he paid for all of the processes that were necessary for this. So we showed up, Bev shows up at the Syrian restaurant to give Mohammed, the one son who can speak English, a handful of these beautiful new menus and this stand-up sign that they can put on the sidewalk to direct people in. And Mohammed says, how much did this cost? And Bev said, nothing. Brandon wants to give this to you. And Mohammed said, but I don't know, Brandon. Mm. And Bev said, that's right, you don't. Well, why is he doing this? And what we realized, this was so hard for Muhammad to receive. He wanted, with everything in him, to pay for it, but he couldn't pay for it. So he was caught in this dissonance. And I said to Bev, Muhammad doesn't yet understand the concept of grace. It's just outside of his understanding. And he's looking for, now, how is this guy wanting to work me somehow? Because they've had lots of people take advantage of them because of their ignorance He's just looking for, well, what's the angle here? And he can't find the angle. So it's totally upending to him. Well, that's how powerful it is to stay vulnerable in the midst of a culture, a broken culture that is always looking for an angle. This takes real courage to live this way. So one thing I was thinking about is that God is an artist and we are created in his image. So we have the, the heart of an artist in us. That's the truth. And artists, what do they do? They offer their creativity. And that's a vulnerable thing to do. When you express yourself creatively and show it for others, you've just made yourself vulnerable by that. And I would say that the followers of Jesus are artists in the sense that they—that we offer our reconditioned and transformed souls, our, really our life-giving identity for others to find nourishment in, that we don't hold back, we don't downcast our eyes, we don't have our metaphorically, the feet, our feet tied and put on the stone table ourselves. Jesus is saying, why are you doing that? I did that. I'm the one that did that once and for all. Stop tying your feet and putting yourself on the altar. I did it already. What I want you to do is come alive. Be a vigorous part of my body.
1: I was just going to say like that, you know, I am working with a bunch of, of moms with young kids that are business owners and they're volunteering their extra time even to this more than me thing. And I love listening to the words that they have to say to women because they say, my time is now it's not when my kids are grown. I want them to see me claiming my purpose and living it out. And here's the deal. It's imperfect because I can't do everything perfectly. And so some days I have to give myself grace that my family fell apart. (laughs) And some days I have to give myself grace that I showed up to a meeting with baby barf on my shirt. And sometimes I have to give myself grace that I didn't make it on time to the soccer game. But the thing is that my kids are watching me live audaciously right now, and they're watching me take big risks for Jesus. And I care more about that than I do perfect lunches. And I just love that. Like, I just love, like, your time is now. Whatever excuse you have in front of you, you, maybe it's that you're afraid that if you take the risk and you go do what is being laid on your heart and that you know that God is putting there, that you might fail and you might some of our best sacrifices get wasted they do but the the process of the person that you're going to become in the, in is is that rich life that is the rich life it's the process not the result and we're so transactional in our mentality that we have we need to be guaranteed that the result will be whatever whatever monetary thing or whatever whatever but A rich life is one where we just step into our purpose and we live it out, even if it means that we fail.
0: Yeah, you know, that that was so beautiful, what you just said. And I think of the phrase that I use a lot in in my life. I say it to myself and I say it to others. Life is about giving what you have to give with your foot on the accelerator. Mm -hmm. And that is not possible when it's just in our strength. This is really the whole message of the Mm -hmm. book, Spiritual Grit that there is a strength that we need that we don't have. And if you think that, so I'm saying two things here. Give what you have to give with your foot pressed down on the accelerator while you are simultaneously abiding and attaching yourself to Jesus, expecting him to fill you with the life that you need and having a great deal of suspicion about your own resources for this. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, your foot's on the accelerator. That giving what we have to give is really translates to a rich and satisfying life. When you live your life giving unapologetically who you are, and you'll see life transformation result from it, even if no one notices, even if it never ends up in a book or on a podcast, the swath you leave behind you will will smell like life, not death. And that's what the body of Christ was meant to do. Move through life, leaving the smell of life behind us, not the smell of death.
1: And Tiffany Smiley says it really perfectly what you're, what you're saying. She says, you need to be totally and completely sold out to your goal, but completely flexible about how you're going to get there. And (laughs) I think we just, that's the Holy Spirit. Like we want to chart a path that is guaranteed towards success. And the Holy Spirit says, I might have a different way that you're going to get there. So you have to be completely flexible with how I'm going to guide you to that goal. And that is a tension for us because we're planners. We like to have, we like to have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed and the Holy spirit is nothing like that.
0: (laughs) So good. Well, I want to leave you guys with a few questions to chew on here and one little tiny homework assignment. All right. So here's, here's some questions to think about relative to the conversation you've been listening to here. The first one is, what is the thing that you're afraid to give in your life? What is, these are questions, by the way, that you can, don't brainstorm them, just take them to Jesus. Ask him, hey, Jesus, what do you think is the one thing that I'm afraid to give in my life? And let him answer the question for you. So what's the thing that you're afraid to give? That's question one. Question two, what's the risk you're too afraid to take? I'm not saying that you should go take that. I'm just asking you to surface what it is and let Jesus guide and direct you as to whatever you should do about that. I'm not saying that just surface that risk and then go do it. That's not up to you or to me. That's up to Jesus. So, but what is the risk you're too afraid to take? Question three, what is the barrier in yourself you refuse to surface and admit? Meaning the barrier to you giving what you have to give, the barrier to you living a rich and satisfying life, the barrier to you not diminishing yourself and sacrificing yourself, but instead living a life that is rich. What is the barrier in yourself that you refuse to surface and admit? And then question number four, what's the help you refuse to pursue or invite? What is the help that you refuse to pursue or invite? And the last question is, What is the excuse that keeps you from deeper intimacy with Jesus and the others? What is the excuse you use your go-to default excuse that keeps you from deeper intimacy with Jesus and with others? There you go. Five questions to contemplate as we head into Easter. Here's your little homework assignment. This is very simple, but it will require risk and vulnerability on your behalf. I'd like you to tell one person who doesn't listen to this podcast To listen to this podcast, to take the risk and invite someone to listen to this podcast, and invite them to listen to this very episode, if you'd like. Don't tell them they have to start at you know season one episode one. Just tell them listen to the latest episode, and then if it resonates with you, then they can backtrack. I we know people on the pigs page who came into season two or season three and they backtracked and they're working their way through all of, the, all of the episodes, which is hard to fathom. But So just ask one person, approach one person that you think might really benefit from having listened to this particular episode and invite them to listen and email them or text them a link to this episode and just tell them, I really thought of you when I listened to this podcast. I'd like for you to listen to it. So there's your little homework assignment, a little vulnerable risk to ask one other person just to, to listen to this episode. Any last thoughts, Becky, before we uh, sign off here?
1: Go, whatever it is, go do it.
0: <laughs> there you go. That's <laughs> why she's the Becky-nator. <laughs> and she's been living her life with whatever it is, she's doing it. So And we all are, you know, we're all in this together. We're all broken, messy people trying to figure it out. So, and we're just grateful to be part of a community. And if you want to extend that community, actually to be involved with one another on a more daily basis, make sure that you go to our our website at lifetree.com. You can also go to paying ridiculous attention to jesus.com. And just look for this episode, season four, episode 13. And there's a link there where you can join the Pigs page. It's a private Facebook page where you can ask to be invited into it. And it's a community of people who've decided to go all in with Jesus. The Pigs of the, of the Pigs page comes from a chapter in my book, Jesus Centered Life, which is called Living a Pigs Life. I won't go into why we, why we live a pig's life, but if you are curious, pick up a copy of Jesus Centered Life you'll get to that chapter and it'll make perfect sense. But if you want community, it's there for you. You can join the PIGS page and be involved in one another's lives. And don't forget, again, the Jesus-centered Bible heading into Easter makes a great gift. The journal, the devotions that go along with it. Uh, you, That person that you've just invited to listen to the podcast, maybe they also would love to get a Jesus-centered Bible. Talk it over with Jesus. So again, if you're looking for the links that we talked about today, You're looking for our our, uh, podcast section on Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, Season 4, Episode 13. And again, you can go to lifetree.com for the links that we've talked about or group.com if you're looking for Jesus-centered resources. You can easily find them there. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. And Becky will be back with us in a couple of weeks, and we'll talk again next time.